Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, Andrew Boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Fight Island 5, which is headlined by Corey Sandhagen and Magic Marlon Moraes in a pivotal bantamweight bat, uh, matchup. Uh, very much looking forward to this fight. Uh, it should be high stakes in terms of, you know, the winner coming out of this probably finds themselves in a number one contender fight uh, or, you know, depending on what the hell happens with the bantamweight title, uh, they could find themselves in a title fight. Who the fuck knows? Um, for me, I think it should be the former. You know what I mean? They should get at least one more fight. But this is a very, very pivotal fight, like I'm saying. Uh, solid fights, you know, otherwise, there's a couple other intriguing fights that people can say uh edson barboza versus makwan Khani should be a barn burner i'm very much looking forward to that fight ben rothwell versus marcin tybora rothwell is always fun to watch uh the ufc debut of drikas duplessis who is the efc welterweight and middleweight champion so that should be interesting uh tom aspinall makes his return the ufc debut of Ilya tuporia who is a guy i've been very very high on since his cage warriors days um ufc debut of kb buller who also steps in to fight tom breeze uh impa kasanganai against joaquin buckley should be a great fight giga chikadze versus omar morales should be fireworks uh and then even the ufc debut of tugir ulen bekov who should who looks like he has a ton of potential and uh you know makes sense why he's a minus 400 uh but yeah i'm very very much looking forward to this fight card um man i'm just glad there's a fucking fight every weekend you know what i mean with the whole the two-month layoff that we had because of covid um and now we're just flying through these cards i can't believe it's already october i just i feel like we just broke down fights for july you know what i mean when i look back and i'm like oh shit i just watched this fight when i'm taping some of these guys and they just fucking fought in july it's insane i i, I don't mind it i like it um, I love that we're getting fights every weekend. You know, I'm looking forward to that break eventually to not have to fucking, you know, research fight 12 fights a week. But uh, I'm, I'm slowly working my way to get, getting ahead of schedule as well. So uh, hopefully we can get back to dropping podcasts for you guys on Mondays or even Tuesdays of fight week rather than Thursday, Friday. And unfortunately for that one day, Saturday, that, that will never happen again. We'll never drop another podcast again on Saturday. I promise you guys. All right, uh, before we get into the breakdowns for the card, let's go over the last event, which was UFC Fight Island 4, which was headlined by Holly Holm versus Irene Aldana. Let's just start off with the main event, though, because I didn't have a bet on it, but I'm banging on myself for not pulling the trigger on Holly Holm. I pretty much called that fight to a T. You know what I mean? She almost got that finish in the fifth round, which is a little prop bet that I had as well. Um, but she looked really, really good. Uh, you know, just another level when it comes to the striking game, especially with Holly Holm when she's fighting these other girls. I think it's like Jermaine Durand to me, uh, Amanda Nunes, Holly Holm, then the rest of the division. It's pretty much that. You know what I mean? Uh, so solid win for Holly Holm there. I wish I pulled a trigger, but uh, personally, I was waiting for plus money. I thought we would get it with the amount of love that we were seeing on on Irene Aldana, but uh, we never ended up getting it, so I ended up passing. But I'm going to have to reconsider those types of situations again where I think that the, the skill discrepancy is huge. Um and, you know, I, I, I can't base my decisions too much on line movement because I miss out on too many good opportunities. And obviously it comes back the other way too, but it is what it is. Anyway, let's get into the actual bet. So let's start off with the lock of the night play. I had minus uh, 281 on 
uh, Casey Kenny at five units. That cashes for plus 1.78 units. Shout out to everybody that got in on Casey Kenny nice and early. Uh, minus 205. I saw a couple people get minus 225. And then we saw the line completely get steamed as the fight week or, or the fight day started getting closer and closer. I think it got up to like minus 350 at a certain point. So shout out to everybody that was able to get in on him early. But I knew as soon as that fight was announced, I, again, I wish I got in on it earlier, just being wrapped up with studying up on other fights. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty certain as soon as that got announced, I was going to be like, all right, Casey Kenny's my lock of the night play for sure. And he went out there and put on a clinic on Haile Yelatang. I thought it was going to be more so of a grappling clinic from Casey Kenny, but he went out there and just ripped to the body time and time again, and Haile just had no answer for it. So he looked amazing in that fight, so I was happy to cash on that. Uh, dog of the night play we whiff 1.5 units at plus 130 on juliana pena uh jermaine Duranami, nobody i don't give a fuck what anybody says nobody called jermaine Duranami to win this fight via submission no way zero none also donnie minus 350 come on Hindsight is always 2020, but there is no way that Jermaine Durandamy deserved to be minus 350 here. Regardless, Juliana Pena was close to actually winning this via decision. You know what I mean? If she just kept Jermaine Durandamy on the cage there, or even if she got the takedown, she was winning that third round. So uh, I don't mind the shot that I took out on Juliana Pena there. Plus 130 was a solid line, in my opinion. I was going with the grappler, the the the, the decorated grappler, the proving grappler, and she was able to get it, uh, you know, really do solid work in that second round. And then the third round, obviously, we know what happened. Uh, Jermaine, Jermaine Durand and notches her first ever submission victory. Fucking nuts. Uh, so L there, but we did also have a parlay 1.5 units at plus 150 at a parlay of Loma Lukbunmi who looked amazing she she looked really really good um it seemed like Jin Yu Fry's game plan of you know pushing Loma up against the cage and kind of out outpowering her there that was thrown out the window pretty much nice and early because we saw when they were clinching up Loma was having a lot of success in the clinch elbows knees you know her Muay Thai is just ridiculous so I'm looking forward to seeing her continuously get better uh, so I happy to hit that at minus 147 and then we had a minus 206 on the Daquan Townsend and Dushko Todorovic fight to go over one and a half that hits with just like 45 seconds yeah, I mean, the literally Todorovic gets him down and then 45 seconds later after hitting that over one and a half, he gets the finish. So I, I tweeted out after, I'm like, this is pretty much karma for when I bet the, or and hammered the under two and a half for Jillian Robertson and Courtney Casey. And, uh, you know, um, Robertson goes out there and gets the submission a minute after the under misses. So what goes around comes around. You know what I mean? So we cashed that plus 2.24 units on that parlay. At the end of the day, plus 2.52 units on the night. Uh, very happy to I'll come out on the winning side here. Hopefully this starts up another, you know, solid stretch where we get the momentum back and we can get back on these winning ways. Uh, if you guys remember, my last streak was nine straight events. I'm gunning for number 10. You know what I mean? I'm hoping we can get to 10 straight, but I got to be very calm, methodical about my approach for these upcoming cards. But there's a lot of good spots on these upcoming cards, uh, not to mention the card that we have coming up this weekend. So, uh, yeah, very much looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, before we get into the breakdowns, once again, I just want to give a shout out to everybody on the Patreon. Uh, we set up the Discord channel, I believe it was a week or two weeks ago now, and it's been great. You know, we have the live chat going on during the events, and then even just for the fuck of it, we just... Uh, it, it's easier than actually sp like making posts on Patreon itself. If everybody on Patreon hops onto the 
onto the Discord. It's much easier. It's a great community we have there. Everybody's calm, cool, respected, uh, or, or respecting of each other, and we have a solid discourse in there. So I'm 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 very happy that I set up the Discord. Um, hop on the Patreon if you haven't already. Five bucks a month, you guys get the early breakdowns. As you guys will see, everything's pre-recorded. So as soon as I record every single breakdown, I drop it on the Patreon ASAP, uh, and then you guys also get a best bets and props article where I outline the best straight or total bet or uh and also the best prop bet for every single fight so uh that's a nice little write-up i do at, after the weigh-ins um every fight week and then early early breakdowns and every official uh pick even when i'm charging the public so five bucks a month is nothing here i mean you guys are helping me make this a full-time thing i'm getting there inching closer and closer every event it's growing i'm happy to be in the three digits um of patrons and it's just growing I'm, I'm super psyched i'm very very happy with where the patreon is going so shout out to everybody on there and shout out to anybody that's about to sign up i appreciate it the link is in the description below make sure you guys click that and check that out all right that should be it let's get into the breakdowns for ufc fight island 5 bruno silva versus tagir Ulenbekov, we got minus 400 for Tagir and plus 325 for Bruno Silva. Let's start off with Bruno Silva, who's had two fights in the UFC so far, and he has gone without a win that entire time. So he lost his first fight in the UFC to Khalid Taha via third round submission, and then the David Dvorak fight he lost via uh, decision. Uh, did I say third round? I sure said third round submission for the Khalid Taha fight, but I whatever i might have fucked it up regardless uh this is a fight that i'm intrigued by because a lot of people keep saying that the the, the strong points of bruno silva's game is his jujitsu but everything i've seen on tape up until this point leads me to believe that there really isn't much of a jujitsu game there he may be a black belt or whatever people are calling him but we don't see much of it in, in his fights um you know the um the, the 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 David Dvorak fight, you know, he gets him down, doesn't really get to do much damage from on top, gets his back at a certain point, and doesn't really do a good job of securing the back either. You know, it, it's small things that make me uh, kind of question um, the the validity of how effective his MMA jujitsu is. You know, what I mean, uh, he has three submission victories out of ten total wins, and he's gotten submitted once, and that was obviously by Khalid Taha. Uh, and it's also something that uh, you see a lot in his fights where he kind of just gives up the third round you know what I mean uh, sometimes he either gets finished in the third round or he just like he's always rocked or hurt you know the Casey Kenny fight he was hurt there David Dvorak was really you know letting go on him in that third round as well and that's not a very good sign for somebody that you want to be backing you know uh, he has solid hands uh, you know he's He's a decent fighter, but the thing is, he doesn't really have that next gear to get to that next step, and I truly think that's where his shortcomings are going to come, especially against a guy like Tagir Ulenbekov, who seems to have a very, very high ceiling. With Tagir Ulenbekov, we're talking about a guy who's pretty much been training side-by-side side with Khabib Nurmagomedov for a long time. He's a part of that Dagestani crew. He trains under, uh, or he used to train under the the, the father of uh of uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov, which is why you guys remember he was actually supposed to fight Alexander Doskolchuk uh, back in July, uh, and then he pulled out of that fight just out of respect for uh, Khabib's father. Uh, you know, he took some time off to grieve with the with the family and all that stuff. But now he's back, and uh, I believe Zubera Tuhugov was the first fighter to truly like fight in the UFC after the passing of uh, Abdul Manap. I want to 
I want to give it a try. I wanted to try his name. Uh, but I believe that was the first time somebody fought. And they came up on the short end. But I think Tahir is the guy that's uh, truly on the next level, though. I think he's going to have a much higher ceiling than Tuhugov. Um, he has a ton more talent. He's 28 years old. Um, you know, he, he has a solid frame for this flyweight division. Um, you know, he's a tall dude, uh, 5'7", uh, Bruno Silva's 5'4", and it usually shows in his fights too. You know, he's always the one going out there and kind of just outstriking his opponent from range. Uh, I wish he'd add a little bit more pop on his shots because that would make him a lot more dangerous on the feet, in my opinion, but he's still efficient enough on the feet to, to not really get blown out. Um, but the best the best of his work really comes on the ground, where he's able to just ragdoll opponents, get them on the ground, and just control them from on top. I don't think anything Bruno Silva is going to be throwing at him is some you know nothing that uh, Tagir has actually seen in the past so I don't think he, he has too much to worry about there uh, but I, I'm intrigued to see what kind of route we see Tagir take in this you know is he going to go out there and just wrestle fuck Bruno Silva and just smash him from on top or is he going to just take the safe route and uh, you know I guess the safer route would be to get the takedowns because again Bruno Silva probably isn't the most uh, or is definitely not the, the most aggressive black belt or anything that we've really seen um, I'd like to see a little bit more off of Bruno Silva's back and we might be able to see that here but truly what I believe the best game plan for Tagir in this fight would be is to you know that first round let's let's box him up on the feet let's use our reach let's use our uh, length and let's really try to implement uh the the striking game and then in that second and third round let's start to take him down let's try to smash him with elbows even if it's just from full guard just just do work from up there but i truly think that tagir ulan bekov is going to be a top five flyweight in the next year or two just give the guys some more activity give the guy a little bit of time but uh he's there he's 28 years old uh he's been a pro since 2013 i did have about a two-year layoff but before he had a second fight but he's been fighting guys with solid record throughout his career we we know a lot of guys on these russian scenes have a solid regional experience because they don't really get coddled as much as some of these north american fighters that kind of just get to pad their record a bit and then when they come to the ufc they just fall on their ass russia they know how to groom these fighters correctly and they give them the necessary opponents and experience that's required before they get to these big stages like he's fighting guys that are eight and one four and oh nine and two 20 and seven in his seventh fight you know what i mean uh goes out there and beats zalgas zumagulov let's not get that mistaken there's a it's a loss on his record but if you guys truly watch that fight that was a five-round fight in kazakhstan so there's a probably a little bit of hometown cooking there, but there's absolutely no way you can say that Ulanbekov lost that fight. So in my opinion, I believe he's still an undefeated fighter. He should be 13-0 at this point in time, uh, and he should have already been in the UFC. If anything, he should have been in the UFC before Zalgas. But um, yeah, he's he's a solid fighter. He Even after that loss to Zumugolov, he goes out there and gets three straight victories, one decision and two uh, submission victories, but uh, the kid's a problem, you know what I mean, again, with his frame, he uses it quite well, he has a good understanding of range at the, you know, in the striking realm, haven't really seen him in too much trouble in any of his fights, uh, and I don't think that Bruno Silva is going to be the one to, to get him into trouble either, so... I truly like Ulanbakov here. I completely understand why he's like minus 400. He might even get up to minus 500 come fight time, but it's solid parlay piece in my opinion. Um, you know, yeah, he, it, it's going to be a while till we see uh, Ulanbakov, you know, 
anything better than minus 300. The kid's a beast, and uh, he's going to take this flyweight division by storm, in my opinion. So I really like Tagir in this spot. Uh, I think he's going to get it done via decision or maybe a third-round finish. Again, we, we, we've we seen Bruno Silva fade late in fights. Either it's a gas tank issue or it's just a... Um, sustainability issue i don't know what it is but uh bruno silva just has too many issues when it comes late into the fight and i've never seen tagir ulambekov really slow down either you know he won a solid five rounds with Zalgaz zumagulov and all of his decision victories we've seen him keep up that pace from minute one all the way to minute 25 or minute 15 so i expect the same thing here but i i could see him breaking bruno silva late as well so i'm going to take tagir ulambekov to win this fight via third round tko Tracy Cortez versus Stephanie Egger. We got minus 185 on Cortez and plus 160 on Egger. Um, let's start off with uh, Tracy Cortez. You know, she's 7-1. and one. Her only loss is coming in her first ever fight where she lost via guillotine choke. And since then, she's been able to put a couple of good, rec- or a couple of good opponents on her record. Most recently, uh, her last Invicta fight against Aaron Blanchfield. She won a split decision in that very, very close fight. Uh, Maria Agapova, she beat her by decision on the Contender Series, which earned her a UFC contract. And then she steps in and fights Vanessa Mello and beats her via unanimous decision in a fight where you know she showed off her grappling and she showed off decent hands uh but she seemed definitely um undersized for that weight class you know she's not she should be a 125er she could even she could even be a 115er to be honest but uh she went up to 135 to fight vanessa mello and she came out on the losing end or sorry she came out on the winning end i think it's going to catch up to her and this could potentially be the fight that it catches up to her against stephanie Yeager. you know one thing that cortez does is she really uh relies on her grappling she tries to grind out her opponents um a lot of her game plan revolves around getting the takedown and holding that top pressure and just landing enough shots to you know stay on on the feet or sorry stay on the ground um her striking looks okay it still could use a little bit of work um but again i think her size is just gonna eventually become a disadvantage especially here at the 135 pound division i was kind of surprised to see that she actually went up to 135 especially in her last fight um I tried looking into the reasoning as to why, and the only reasoning I could find she did, as to why she took the Mello fight was because she wanted to get in a fight before the end of the calendar year in 2019 after she earned her contract on the Contender Series in uh, in July. Um, so she steps in, she fights Vanessa Mello in November, and then I was assuming that she'd go back down to 135, but here she or 125, but here she is, you know, just over a year, or just under a year later. Still going up to 135. She was supposed to fight Bea Maleki last time around. Uh, or sorry, uh, before Maleki passed, uh, uh, pulled out. And in steps uh, Stephanie Egger, who's a UFC newcomer uh, herself. She's known to be a judo black belt. Uh, she did compete against Ronda Rousey in the, in the Olympics. They both, they had two meetings. They split the meetings. Uh, but she does have <clears throat> a ton of potential uh, to fulfill if she actually wants to do make some noise she's 32 years old so if anything she's gonna have to get it done now if anything um her most recent fight was actually september 5th where she got a rear naked choke over sinja kiefer um see the 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 weird thing about this so she we have a couple of fights on her we have the alexa connor's fight where we saw uh you know she looked very uncomfortable in the striking realm alexa connor's anytime she threw a combination she was able to back up uh egg up up against the cage and she seemed, you know, to really seem flustered there. She lost a split decision there. Uh, and then we get the Eva Siskonen fight. Um, the, the one thing to note here, though, 
is that fight and her most recent fight against Kiefer were both for Buddy MMA Clash, which is a promotion over there, I believe, in... Where is that? Switzerland. Uh, note that Stephanie Egger's gym is Buddy MMA. So pretty much this entire promotion is made to make their uh, their, their fighters look good. You know what I mean? Eva Siskonen was 5-4-2 and two going into that fight. And then Sinja Kiefer was 4-4 four and four going into that fight. So a little bit of record padding, if you guys want to say. But then again, I'm not sure the amount of women that are actually out there that can actually compete, uh, you know, at this level. Uh, so I'll give her a little bit of a pass. Her fight against Reina Mira, or King Reina, if you guys want to call her that from Risen, that's probably her most... Um, that's probably her most legitimate win you know what i mean reina is a solid opponent uh she went into that fight with an 11 and 2 record uh she had solid grappling herself too but uh stephanie Eger was able to go in there and round after round get this fight to the ground uh and control her you would get her back pretty much every single time <coughs> sorry uh and she was able to do enough control and she wasn't able to get the finish but she was able to control the vast majority of that fight so here she comes up against Tracy Cortez in a fight where I think it's actually going to play out in the grappling realm. But I got to give the slight edge to Hager. You know, she's 5'8", Tracy Cortez is 5'5". Um, you know, Stephanie Hager, just just physically, she looks much stronger, much uh, in much better straight shape when it comes to strength than Tracy Cortez. So I think it's going to be a little bit tough for Cortez to get this fight to the ground. And especially when she, you know, clinches up in those positions, I think she's going to find it harder to get Stephanie Hager down than uh, she would expect. Uh, I wouldn't even be surprised to see Hager pull out her judo and uh, reverse some of these clinch positions and get a takedown of her own. Um and then when it gets to the ground, I, I truly think that Edgar is going to be the stronger woman. And even if she's on her back, I think she'll find a way to get a sweep and, and, and you know, uh, reverse positions. I think Tracy Cortez is just good enough to, like, gra grapple fuck some of these women. But when she goes up against a girl like Stephanie Edgar, I think she's going to have a little bit of trouble. Um, you know, I want to see the improvements on the feet from Stephanie Edgar. So I think uh, I'll give the slight advantage there to Tracy Cortez, uh, but not by a wide margin. Uh, but I truly think this is going to come down to something as simple as size and strength. Um, the one sketchy thing about Stephanie Edgar is obviously her gas tank. When fights do go late, we do see a little bit of gassing from her. You know, she, she's a big girl. She doesn't really seem to know how to properly or efficiently... Um, regulate her gas tank uh but i think she would be she would do well enough in the first two rounds the first 10 minutes to be able to eke out those two rounds and then survive the third round because cortez is no crazy you know finisher or anything like that so i think she'll be able to survive that third round if it you know if her gas tank really does fail her uh and i think she could pull out a decision uh you know there is a potential for her to get a submission earlier in this fight but i truly think it's going to come down to her just kind of grapple fucking tracy cortez uh landing good shots from on top maybe threatening with a couple of submissions but giving up on them uh but uh, yeah i could i could absolutely see a possibility of a stephanie Eger submission early uh otherwise i think she just grinds this fight out um i'm kind of banging on myself for not getting on this uh, tape a little bit earlier because she's roughly around that plus 225 range and now she's all the way down to plus 160 so a lot of people are doing their tape studying and they're seeing that Edgar definitely has some value here um i'm gonna wait it out i'm gonna see if there's gonna be a little bit more tracy money tracy cortez money coming back in as the fight week gets gets longer um and maybe I'm going to cross my fingers that we get Stephanie uh, Egger at plus 200 again. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's tough for me to to 
to back Stephanie Yeager to completely because I still need to see more from her. Uh, you know, the lack of competition that she faced on the regional scene, that's a that's a little bit of a concern too. And then obviously her gas tank is a concern. What if she fucking gases out seven minutes into the fight? And then, you know, the last three minutes of the second round and the entire third round is Tracy Cortez's. So that's something to to be skeptical and worry about as well too because Cortez would definitely have the cardio advantage here. Um, but again, I truly think it's going to come down to something as simple as the size and strength of Stephanie Egger here. So I do like Egger here. I think she's going to be, uh, be much better on the ground, at least for those first 10 minutes. And then after that, Cortez can take over. But as long as there's no 10-8 round or anything like that, I think, I think Stephanie Egger will be safe here for uh, a decision victory. So I'm going to go with Stephanie Egger to win this fight via decision. Giga Chikadze versus Omar Morales. We got minus 145 on Omar and plus 125 on Giga. The under two and a half is at plus 180, which I find a little bit interesting here. So uh, let's start off with Giga Chikadze. Uh, he's coming off a victory over Erwin Rivera. Uh, that was back in May. That was during their first little COVID stretch um, where they had like three events back to back to back. Um, but yeah, uh, he stepped in and he was supposed to fight Mike Davis that night. Unfortunately, Mike Davis got hurt in steps short Norris Irwin Rivera uh, at a weight class above that he's no, uh, used to fighting at. And it obviously showed. You know, Giga Chikazi, six foot at 145 pounds, is a, a taller uh, featherweight. So obviously, it showed in that fight with Irwin Rivera was giving up a ton of size uh and you know giga did a solid job of keeping erwin rivera on the end of his punches and of his kicks anytime erwin rivera would try to crash forward with any big strikes he'd either eat a knee up the middle or just a, a nice one two down the pipe and uh it, it shows the 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 type of striking that giga definitely had in that fight even in the brandon davis fight you know that was a split decision but he showed uh, solid skills all around and then the jamal emmers fight you know a lot of people are saying that Emmers pretty much gave away that fight by not, uh, you know, implementing the grappling sooner. Uh, and he allowed Giga Chikadze to really get ahead with the striking. So what we get with Giga Chikadze is a solid kickboxer. He has glory, um, you know, uh, experience as well, funding over there for their kickboxing promotion. Um, but what he shows also is kind of like a karate style too, which is kind of in, uh, in interesting. Like he stands sideways. He has that low hand stance, bouncing stance, and then he likes to you know crash forward every now and then and throw a couple of strikes and then uh pivot out and, and get out of the way a couple of solid kicks as well from that stance um you know he he seems to be a little bit of a point punch, uh, point uh fighter uh but um you know, mainly a striker. And we have seen a little bit of grappling from him and uh, even grappling defense, as well as a reverse one, Jamal Emmers, which was very, very impressive. But he seems to be rounding out his MMA game, uh, especially training over there at King's MMA when he has training partners like guys to the level of Benil Dariush, who he seems to be quite close with. So that's very, very, uh, you know, um, uh, reassuring if you're a Giga Chikadze backer. Omar Morales, on the other hand, trains over there at Hard Knocks 365, or they call it Sanford MMA now, which is headed by Henry Hooft. Um, solid striker, a Venezuelan, Venezuelan guy that now finds himself in Miami, or sorry, that Florida region. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's undefeated, 10-0 and 0 now. He's going in there. Uh, last time around, he beat uh, Gabriel Benitez by decision. Before that, Dong Young, Lil Dong, I should call him, 
and uh, yeah, he was actually scheduled to fight Alexander Hernandez at a certain point, and that would have been a great way to find out where Omar Morales is really at. Um, but uh, here he draws Giga Chikadze, and this should be a fun striking battle. Anytime you get a striking battle of this, you know, type where both guys are seeming to have a ton of power in their hands, uh, you know, it's it's interesting that the under two and a half is plus one eighty. Yeah, they've both gone to decisions a couple of times over their last couple of fights, but I still believe that both of them have power in their hands, and we could absolutely see one of them land a bomb here and really finish the fight. Um, I I lean a little bit more so to the Omar Morales side. You know, I feel like he doesn't mind walking through the fire a little bit more than Giga, and he, that will allow him to have a little bit more output. Um, and I think he, he can land hard enough on a Giga Chikadze to, you know, really change the fight. Uh, again, trading with a guy like Henry Hooft, he's Henry Hooft has seen it all. So to to for him to match up against a guy like Giga Chikadze, uh, it, it's solid for Omar Morales to really know. Okay, these are the ins ins and outs of being able to beat somebody like this. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a leg kick heavy attack from Omar Morales, especially with that wide karate stance that Giga Chikadze brings to most of his fights. Uh, the guy has a solid leg kick, but the most uh, most of his damage is done by his hands. So I really expect him to you know kick the leg nice and. Early, and then slowly open up his hands as the fight progresses the interesting caveat to this fight is this will be the first time down to 145 for Omar Morales in the UFC and I believe in the in in his career to, to like yeah period this is actually the first time he's gone down to 145 so he has a very built and like sculpted figure already, so I'm interested to see how he looks like coming down to 145. It's almost like Edson Barboza going from 155 to 145, and he's done it, and he looked good last time around too, so I'm expecting kind of the same thing from Omar Morales. But it does give a little bit of pause when you're thinking about a guy that is not used to fighting 15 minutes and exerting as much energy as he normally does. Uh on first thought, like before going into this, I'm like, all right, Omar Morales, no no bones about it. I really expect him to go out there and get this W. But the more you look at Giga Chikadze as well, he has such that and such an intriguing style with that karate stance that he brings, his in and out movement, his ability to manage distance, his kicks, uh, you know, his kickboxing background. I think he's like 36 and 6 or something like that. Uh, crazy amount of experience in that kickboxing realm. But obviously, the MMA realm is completely different. We haven't seen too much in terms of the grappling. From Omar Morales, we know that he likes to go out there and just try to land a bomb and try to really hurt his opponents in that uh, fashion. But uh, when he's going up against a guy like Giga Chikadze, who seems so one-dimensional with the striking and is mainly just a, a striker, uh, you you wonder if Omar Morales is going to go out there and try to change his game plan and, and try to, you know... Uh, go for takedowns or try to clinch up or do something like that so I have a little bit more questions in this fight as compared to most people who seem very set on Omar Morales here uh, even though the line is starting to close uh, but I, I do like Omar I think it's going to be his output that ends up winning him this fight um, overall fight IQ um, yeah I just think he's a better fighter than Giga and it's about time that Giga takes that out because a lot of people are going in there and can continuously fading him and unfortunately coming up on the short end pretty much every single time. So I think this will be the first time we see Omar, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Giga take that L in the cage, uh, at least in the UFC. And it's going to come by, uh, man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what to, 
what method I think we're going to get Omar here. Like I said, I like the under two and a half at plus 180, but I could also see this being like a little bit of a hesitant fight where both guys are just hitting each other at the end of their punches and not really landing that that bomb. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know what? I'll go with Omar Morales to win this fight via decision. Uh, I hope he goes with the leg kicks early and often, which will allow him to open up his hands. And then if we see some grappling from him, I wouldn't be uh, too mad either. But uh, this might be a fight that I kind of stay away from. It is it is closer than I, I believe most people think it is, uh, just due to the background and the experience of Giga Chikazi in that in that stand-up realm uh and again the lack of what we've seen from Omar Morales when it comes to the grappling as I believe that would be the safer path to victory if that's a skill that he actually has uh so once again I'll go with Omar Morales to win this fight via decision uh and yeah this, the, the line is accurate in my opinion uh but yeah I still do like Omar Morales here once again to win via decision Ali Al-Kaisi versus Tony Kelly. We got minus 230 on Tony Kelly and plus 190 on Ali Al-Kaisi. Let's start off with Al-Kaisi. Uh, he's 8-4 coming into this fight off of uh, a loss in his UFC debut against Erwin Rivera. It was a split decision loss, but I do think that Erwin Rivera just slightly edged that fight out. Um, but it did show us a lot of things that could come into play in this fight against Tony Kelly. So what we have seen from Al-Kaisi in previous fights is something that he likes to do is really jump for guillotines he has a really mean grip uh he does he has caught uh, several fighters in that submission uh but it seems like his you know his go-to is kind of like the ground game he likes to take guys down and tries to control them there he has decent hands but i think that his best work is really done on the ground um you know uh, he did clip Rivera a couple times, but nothing significant. And he was the one kind of getting lit up on the feet when it really was in the striking realm. Um, you know, Rivera just seemed a little bit too quick for him. And it seemed to be the detriment to al in that fight. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm stumped on this guy. You know what I mean, I, I want to see how much, uh, you know... Uh, how much he's actually able to like control guys on the ground um you know the the two last two brave fights that he had we don't have access to those but the 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 fight where he got an arm bar in nelson no sorry jurass dia that's a guillotine choke so the pretty much all the only fights that we have footage of him pre-ufc are the ones that he got like a guillotine choke for uh but i truly want to see what his top game is like because i feel like if his grappling is up to par he could potentially give tony kelly some issues here uh tony kelly on the other hand he's coming off a fight of the night performance against uh kevin kamaka or kai kamaka i should say uh and that was a fight where these guys were going to war you know tony kelly started off hot then kai kamaka started to come on with some beautiful body shots and then they were just going back and forth pretty much the entire fight uh but kai kamaka comes out on the winning end uh very very entertaining fight and showed us a lot about tony kelly as well the guy's gritty as hell the guy's tough as hell very very durable uh, one thing that I wanted to give him a shout out for is the fact that he fought Kevin Aguilar with four professional fights, or sorry, five professional fights. He was 5-0 and at the time, went up against Kevin Aguilar, who was 10-1 and at the time. Uh, and he went to a five-round split decision with Kevin Aguilar, who, you know, soon after that, uh, hopped over to the UFC. Um, Kelly, very, very talented. You know I mean, I, I love what I see on the feet from him. Uh, solid footwork, solid kicks, solid hands. Um, and he uses his range pretty well, too. He's going to have a... 
He's going to have an advantage here in terms of size as well over Alkaisi. He's 5'9 with a 70-inch reach, whereas uh, Alkaisi is 5'6 with a 68-inch reach. So I, I'm pretty sure that we'll see Tony Kelly pretty much try to keep this fight you know, at distance as much as possible, using his footwork to get in and out with strikes, um, you know, using that front teep to keep Alkaisi on the outside, and then coming down the middle with a 1-2. Um, I, I love what he brings to the table in, in terms of the striking realm. My only concern is, one... This is going to be his first fight down at bantamweight, so that's one thing that you need to keep in mind. He's going to be cutting weight. He's going to be dropping down for the first time to 135 pounds. Two, what if Alkaisi goes out there and tries to take a grapple-heavy approach where he just pushes him up against the cage and he kind of just controls him? I have seen Kelly getting taken down a couple times, and that's absolutely a, a possibility here uh, with Alkaisi, you know, possibly going for the takedowns and trying to grind this fight out. Uh, Kelly, decent off of his back. He is offensive, so I don't think that Alkaisi, if he does get him down, will be able to stay, you know, uh, too comfortable on top. He's going to have to continue to work, look to pass, or at least look to, you know, stay active with uh, landing some damage. Uh, but I don't know why I just have a little bit of a weird feeling about this fight kind of like how, how I had a weird feeling about the Charles Jordan fight last weekend you know a lot of fighters got, or a lot of people got bailed out with the with the with the draw uh, I still haven't gone back to watch that fight again so you know <laughs> there's that uh, you know it could possibly score for Jordan but you guys are here for the Al-Qaeda and Kelly fight um so yeah, I, I'm a little bit skeptical. You know, minus 230 is a little bit too much for me when it comes to Tony Kelly. Uh, if I was getting closer to minus 170, minus 160, maybe that's something that I consider. But even in parlaying him, I'm not sure. Maybe on my Hail Mary or my lottery parlay, I'll throw him in there or something like that. But uh, as an actual bet, man, like he should spark Ali Agheisi on the feet. Don't get me wrong. But it's when the the clinch situations start to happen and we really see uh you know Alkaisi possibly push him up against the cage and and try to slow him down and if Alkaisi tries to go out there and go strike for strike for him he's gonna get boxed up he's gonna he's he's gonna eat it for sure but uh yeah I, I do like Kelly here there's a little bit of skepticism on my end about the type of fighter that we'll see still kind of young in his MMA career uh when it comes to age he's 33 so he's really gonna have to start coming into his own um but yeah that was a lot of damage he took against Kai Kamaka back in August August 15th so we're talking about just under two months ago there he took all that damage against Kai Kamaka and now here he is once again against Ali Kaisi so uh, something that's you know something that you need to keep in mind and again he's cutting weight dropping another 10 pounds to get to down to 135 so you got to think that could possibly have an effect on him however when it comes to a final prediction i'm actually going to be going with tony kelly to win this fight via um yeah via decision i think he just picks apart al kaisi from the from distance uh and and is able to keep his distance enough to be able to you know implement his game plan without getting uh totally controlled totally taken down and 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 hurt uh from al kaisi or even a submission from al kaisi so uh, i like kelly uh to win this fight via decision impa kansanganai versus joaquin buckley we got minus 255 on kansanganai and plus 215 on buckley let's start off with joaquin buckley who made his ufc debut on pretty short notice um after kevin holland was supposed to fight trevin giles um or giles i keep forgetting how if it's a g or a G, whatever either way kevin holland was supposed to fight trevin and uh trevin obviously you know had his issues before the fight um literally right before they were supposed to walk out and kevin holland unfortunately did not get to fight that night the ufc did a good job in finding him a replacement especially somebody as fresh as joaquin buckley who had fought the week before that against jackie gosh a fight where he was able to avenge an earlier uh, a loss earlier in his career 
He got it done via KO in the second round. Uh, that was a fight where it just looked like Gosh gave up in that second round. There's something wrong with his foot, and he pretty much just gave into it. Uh, and Joaquin Buckley was able to unload on him, land a beautiful shot, and uh, pretty much face plant Gosh. And he was able to get the the, the call up pretty quickly there. So, uh, you know, good win for him there. I'm still skeptical about the the level of this guy's skills. I don't think he's really up there. You know, I think he's one of those guys that just kind of relies on his power a little bit too much, tries to, you know, just blitz forward every now and then, throw a bunch of shots, hoping to land a significant enough one that will either rock his opponent or drop his opponent. Um, but I, I think when he fights guys, especially like Impa, uh, he's going to be in for a rude awakening in terms of just guys that are, you know, technically a little bit more sound, a little bit more efficient with their movements, uh, and just overall better fighters. You know, um, Joaquin Buckley does have a little bit of experience in the wrestling realm, but it doesn't seem like something that he leans on a little bit uh, or leans on uh, enough at all. You know, I feel like if he added that added that a little bit more to his game, uh, it would allow for his hands to up a little, up a little bit more, you know, fainting for takedowns, letting opponents kind of, you know, um, fall for the fake and then come up with, uh, with punches uh, and really showcase his striking. But we just don't see that from him. Obviously, the Kevin Holland fight was a hard fight for him in terms of, um, you know, Kevin Holland had such long range, uses his kicks very well, obviously very experienced in the UFC cage. Um, and then obviously, you know, quite short notice. And it was short notice for both of them. You know what I mean? If anything, Joaquin Buckley had it a little bit t- more difficult because he actually fought two weeks before. Um, but then he steps in and fights, Ke- oh, sorry, a week before, and then he steps in and fights uh, Kevin Holland, you know, a completely different style than what he was preparing for with Jackie Gosh. Um, and then Kevin Holland, we know he can be a thorn in the side of a lot of people when he has that that size advantage, that reach advantage, that length advantage, where he's able to just continue to kick you from the outside, kind of, um, you know, really stunt your uh, forward pressure. Um, and we, we saw that pretty much uh, throughout that entire fight. And then Kevin Holland was finally able to put him out in that third round with a pistol of a right hand. And we saw him be successful with that in that first round too. And that seems to be the, the kryptonite of Buckley. You know what I mean? Like very efficient, methodical strikers. And that's what I'm slowly starting to get from Inca, Impa Kasanganai. It was really tough for me to get a read on this guy from his contender series days to even the Mackie Patola fight. But as you start to study the guy's game a little bit more, you see what he's kind of kind of doing. And at first, it seems like a little bit of low output. But when he really starts to put on his opponents and really starts to stifle them, um, it, it makes sense. You know what I mean? Uh, going into this, I thought like uh, uh, the low output, the potential low output of Impa Kasanganai would you know give a little bit more edge for Joaquin Buckley to kind of edge this out if this goes to a decision, just with his you know his blitz attacks, but. Bukasanganai, again, he's kind of a sniper like Kevin Holland. He uses his length and his reach very well. Obviously, he's not going to have as significant of a reach and a height advantage as Kevin Holland did over Buckley, but he still has that you know, the, the the understanding of how to use that range, how to use his striking, how to use his jab and his lead hand especially to really uh, gauge the distance between him, his, him and his opponent and then make them pay whenever they get a little bit too close. You know, he's one of the few fighters that it kind of surprised me at how um, how lethal he's allowed his lead hand to be. You know, a lot of people think that that the rear hand is the one that really generates the most most power and and is always the kill shot that a lot of fighters look for. But um, Impa Kasangana has done a great job with you know masking that lead hand, that left hand. Um, 
you know, whether it's a double jab, whether it's a, a jab followed by a hook, you know, he, he does such good work with that left hand. <clears throat> um, and it kind of catches his opponents off guard. You know, these guys are thinking that there's a jab coming, then he's able to just bypass their guard and hit them with a beautiful hook. Um, one of his favorite combinations is the right to the body and follow with the left to the head. And I think that's a great combination too, especially in this um in this matchup against Buckley, who has a little bit of a higher of a guard whenever he's striking. Uh, speaking of guards with him, because I'm going to something that we saw Maggie Patolo with a little bit um, success uh, in their fight was with the high guard of Impikasangani. <clears throat> when he does decide to really, um, you know, cover up and shell up, he leaves. He 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 goes to, like he moves down, like he crouches a little bit too much, and that might be something that Buckley could kind of um, hopefully catch on to, and then maybe land an uppercut of some sort. And we know he has power, but I'm a little bit skeptical in terms of like how devastating his power was. Like I'm not super impressed with his finish over Jackie Gosh. That guy gave up. I mean, the guy was 11 years older than him too. Let's not forget that. Um, but it, that guy pretty much gave up, was just a, a punching bag at that point, and Buckley was able to get him out of there. But even his earlier wins, I mean, I'm not super impressed by it. I think that Impa Kasangani is way more of an efficient striker, a better methodical fighter, and I like th- that we could see uh, the grappling from him in t- from him as well. We did see that in his contender series fight against Anthony Adams, where he was able to switch it up and really catch Adams off guard and really get a takedown and do some damage from on top. And I think he's able to... Uh, he should be able to do that with Buckley too and you know Buckley does have a little bit of a wrestling background but not the the greatest and we have seen him taken and taken down in some of these fights so I think if Impa can you know kind of lull him into thinking that this is going to be a striking fight and then in that second round go for a takedown and try to switch it up I think it could be very, very uh, helpful for him. But even if this fight stays on the feet for the majority of it, I think that we'll see him, but Kansang and I just use that left hand to perfection, try to throw off Buckley, obviously throw a couple front funk kicks up the middle here and there. But I think it's really going to frustrate Joaquin Buckley when he's not able to land perfectly enough on Impa to, you know, rock him, drop him, and, you know, sway the judges. Because I think the Impa is, he's durable. Obviously, he's undefeated still. He hasn't been finished or stopped or anything like that. Uh, and I don't think that Joaquin Buckley is the guy that, that's going to go out there and do it. <clears throat> Minus 255, there's a lot of respect coming in on Impa. You know, I mean, if. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm surprised that uh, he was only minus 135 against Patolo, and now here he is against Joaquin Buckley. Yeah, Buckley got put out in his last fight, but it was against Kevin Holland. That's not a, a world beater by any sorts, but a lot of people are uh, valuing Impa at a high level now uh, based off of both their most recent performances. I do agree that Impa should win. Uh, I, I do think he's the better fighter here. Uh, there is that potential of Joaquin potentially landing on him. Uh, you know, Patolo did land a couple times on him, but not to the extent of hurting, wobbling, or dropping him. But uh, maybe Joaquin Buckley could be that guy to do it. But I, I just see Impa being a little bit too efficient. I see, you know, carrying the range well with his kicks, uh, using that left hand to, to perfection, like I said. Uh, you know, combinations. Um, you know, getting out of the way of the big shots of Buckley. I think he studied it. He should have studied him enough to, you know, kind of prepare himself for those blitz attacks and counter accordingly. He's a decent counter striker as well, too. So uh, I like him here. I think he's going to win by decision. I think it's just going to be a calm, methodical approach. Nothing overbearing or overwhelming that will really overextend him to, you know, 
potentially get knocked out. And uh, I'd be happy to see him, you know, mix in a couple of takedowns there because uh, I think that would really keep Buckley on the on the edge. Um, we have seen Buckley kind of slow down later in fights too, so that's something that Impa should be able to take advantage of. Uh, and then I think after that, like one and a half round mark, we'll really see the the the, the punching power of Joaquin Buckley take a, a little bit of a dive, and that's where Impa should be able to really be confident in his striking, really be confident in the striking realm, and. Um, you know, really put it on Buckley. So I don't think we'll see a finish here. I do think it's going to be Impa by decision. Uh, and I, I look forward to con- continuing to see how he progresses as a fighter because he has a ton of potential. He's a calm, methodical fighter. Uh, you know, I think he has solid fight IQ as well too. And, uh, you know, that alone should be enough to will him to a victory here against Joaquin Buckley via decision. Chris Dalkis versus Rodrigo Nascimento. We got minus 260 on Nascimento and plus 220 on Chris Dalkis. Let's start off with Rodrigo Nascimento. He's coming off a victory over Dontel Mays, where he was able to get a rear naked choke halfway through the second round. Uh, in that first round, the dude was throwing bombs. You know, he he knew that it was uh, he'd had to play on that uh, in the striking game a little bit before he could decide to take this fight to the ground. And even when he did decide to take it to the ground, you know, it it was a little bit of a battle up against the cage uh, where Dontel Mays was actually putting up a bit of a fight. Uh, even reversed him a couple times up against the cage but eventually uh you know uh, Nascimento was able to get him down wasn't able to get the finish in the first round but it did eventually come in the second round after Mays gave up his back and we got a rear naked choke from uh Nascimento uh what we saw from Nascimento in that fight was heavy striking but somewhat wild you know I mean we obviously know he's a jiu-jitsu guy so he wants to get the fight to the ground ASAP and try to implement that BJJ However, you know, every fight starts on the feet. And in that case, he has to make do with what he has in terms of his striking uh, skills. Um, again, he, he throws with a lot of heat, has a solid uh, leg kick as well. Um, but I don't like how wild he is with it. He throws with a lot of heat, like I said, and there is a lot of power behind it. Um, but he does throw a little bit too wild for my liking. Um, obviously, it's something that, that needs to be shored up a little bit. And he has... Um, you know, a solid training partners to do that with, but the issue here is, I'm still concerned about the, the the level of competition that he fought leading into the UFC. Obviously, he was on the contender series and he fought a guy that was seven and zero and Mikhail Martinek. Uh, he got an arm triangle choke in that fight, but that was a fight where also Martinek landed a couple good shots on the feet too. Um, what we've seen from Dalkis in his last fight against Parker Porter, uh, who was a guy that, you know, came in with a solid, solid striking base, yet we saw Chris Dalkis was the one that was actually getting his punches off uh, properly. You know, he, he was a lot crisper. I was very surprised to see the striking that he was able to implement in that fight. You know, very straight shots down the middle, crisp shots, uh, powerful shots too, and quick too. He was landing a couple shots and they were very, very fast for, uh, you know, especially for a heavyweight. So that's uh, that's something that's a little bit concerning if you're a Rodrigo Nascimento backer. You know, Christelkis is known as a guy that has uh, a lot of good jujitsu, but it's it's a little bit skeptical in my opinion. I have seen him pull off, uh, you know, reversals and uh, have seen him pull off some solid takedowns and solid jujitsu uh, maneuvers, but I've seen other times where he's taken down pretty easily. And that's a little bit of a concern going up against a guy like Nascimento who, who wants to get the fight to the ground. Um, going into this, I thought the under one and a half would probably be a sure bet. However, uh, I could absolutely see an, uh, an, uh, a, 
a way that this plays out where both guys are just kind of hanging on to each other. You know what I mean? And there is a skepticism in terms of Rodrigo Nascimento's gas tank as we haven't really seen him or there, at least there's not footage available of him going past the first round. Or sorry, uh, past the second round. Obviously, we saw him go into the second round against uh, Dante Mays. But um, we have seen Dalkis later in fights. You know, his fight against... Uh, uh, Jeff Blackley uh, that was a back and forth fight but he was still in there from the you know first minute to the third minute he did get taken down a couple times he did get reversed a couple times but he was still in it what is Rodrigo Nascimento's gas tank like I'm not 100% sure so I'm not totally thinking that the under one and a half is a sure bet here um, and I'm not really confident on either side but if you give me such a wide line I would rather go with Chris Daukis here um, again sharper hands solid enough jiu-jitsu hopefully he's able to stay out of whatever nascimento throws his way and hopefully he can pull off some submissions to, or reversals as well but uh you know nascimento is a big dude as well that's something that you, that you have to keep in mind Dalkis is 6'3 with a 60 76 inch reach um and we got uh 6'2 80 inch reach for nascimento so slight height advantage for Dalkis, but slight reach advantage for um nascimento and obviously uh you know the the leg reach is something that you need to take into consideration as well but i i can't believe i'm actually saying it but i'm actually leaning chris Dalkis here i again i think his his ability to mix his striking which seems to you know look like it's getting better on a fight to fight basis uh and especially what we saw in that parker porter fight I was very impressed with what we saw from his hands. He he ha- carries a lot of power in them. Uh, is able to sneak in, a, you know, a lot of good shots right down the middle. Uh, very tight uh, uh, boxing as well in, the, in those situations. And then the, you know, the wildness of uh, Rodrigo leaves a little bit to be desired. So I'm not sure why people are super, you know, uh, set on Nascimento here. I'm surprised he's as big of a favorite as he is. But with that said, I'm not willing to, you know, part ways with my money for Dalkis to see if he's able to pull off the upset here. But I do believe he's going to be the one that gets the victory. Um, yeah, th- this could be an absolutely sloppy fight too. But if it stays on the feet, I do favor Dalkis a little bit. Uh, he could have a little bit more output. Uh, and again, he could land the better shots if he's able to just, you know, um, uh, catch Rodrigo whenever he's throwing those wild shots so uh, that's something to keep in mind again this is a stay away fight for me even the over under I'm not even sure which way I'm going to go there but I'll go with uh, Chris Delkis to probably win this fight by second or third round TKO um, with that said again stay away fight for me can't pick either side confidently uh, but if you are putting a gun to my head and you want me to tell me what side which has value is probably the, the Chris Delkis side so I'm going with Chris Delkis to win this fight via second round TKO KB Buller versus Tom Breeze. We got minus 260 on Breeze and plus 220 on Buller. Um, Let's start off with Tom Breeze. So we know what has plagued him for the majority of his career. It's been his mental game. You know what I mean? He's managed to pull out a couple of fights um, pretty much day of, weigh-in day, or even fight week, as which is why you see such a lull between his fight between Daniel Kelly and Brendan Allen. Uh, you know, he was supposed to fight Cesar Ferreira twice, Alessio de Carico, uh, Ian Heinish, and then Andy Clamp. Actually, that was a grappling belt. Uh, but before he did get st- step back into the cage with Brendan Allen, he went out there and outgrappled Lee Chadwick and Andy Clamp uh, in grappling uh, exhibitions and then uh, went into that fight with Brendan Allen and uh, accepted that bottom position a little bit too much it seemed um, 
obviously shout out to Brendan Allen for doing a good job of keeping him there and uh you know staying out of any bad positions but uh Allen did find himself or sorry uh Breeze did find himself in a very compromising position up against the cage where it seemed like he could have exploded off the cage to kind of just get out of that bad position but he just he just stayed there and Brendan Allen was able to rain down shots and we saw I'm going to chalk it up to uh, Tom Breeze's mental kind of just breaking and giving up at that point but the kid is talented man let's not forget how good he could actually be if his mental game was there and I'd say more than half of uh you know the the attributes that you need when you get into the cage is supposed to be mental so he needs to really shore that up because I feel like he could be a huge problem for a lot of guys so you know, great striking game. His jiu-jitsu game is getting better, uh, even though we didn't see the best of it this last time around. Um, but I truly believe he has a lot to offer when it comes to the jiu-jitsu realm. Uh, he did just grapple actually back in July. So he has tried to stay active as much as possible. And I think that this fight here against uh, KB Buller is a perfect one for him to try to get his head back into the game. You know, KB Buller coming in as an undefeated 8-0 fighter. Um, I think Tom Breeze, uh, again, it comes down to him, you know, being mentally uh, just broken by these fighters before even stepping into the cage. Even if to talent for talent, he should go out there and scrub these guys. You know, I think with the unknown of KB Buller, uh, there's only a couple fights really out there to really uh, gather the, the intel that you need on this fighter. Uh, but I think how they match up is kind of a good matchup for Tom Breeze. The, again, there is a lack of tape out there in terms of what we can gather ourselves on Kibi Buller. But what we can actually see and find is that, you know, he does do good at range. Um, he has solid kicks. Um, his jiu-jitsu seems to be on point, has a, a north-south choke on his record, a couple other uh, dart chokes finishes on his record as well too. Um, so I'm interested to see how this will play out if it does hit the ground. But I still need to see a little bit more from KB. I, I'm not totally sold on him yet. There's just not enough uh, data out there for me to actually come to a legitimate decision on whether he's worth an underdog shot here or not. You know, his most... His most um, Impressive victory to date is his victory over Matt Dwyer, which was a three-round victory. Not a fight that I got a, was able to see, though. Um, you know, so he does seem like a lengthy guy, uses his range well, uh, but I think Tom Breeze might have the advantage on the feet. My interest is where it's going to be on the ground. Um, yeah, there's there's just too many unknowns in this fight for me to truly make uh, a, a read here or a bet. Um, obviously, with with the line being as wide as as it is, you might just if you want to bet this fight at all, it's probably the dog um, in KB. But I'm actually gonna go with Breeze here. I think he gets back on track, and it hurts me to say that. You know, what I mean, as a fellow Punjabi <laughs> uh, individual, fellow Sikh. Um, I really want to see Buller go out there and prove me wrong. You know what I mean? But I need to see more from him before I can make an educated guess, an educated prediction regarding what he can actually bring to the cage. And I, he could be a live dog as well. For me personally, I'm going to stay away from this fight completely. Like, I don't want my bias of Buller being a Punjabi guy for me to be like, okay, I'm going to go out there and bet this guy. Uh, but I'm not, I can't trust Breeze yet either. We need to see him go out there get a couple of victories, get some more uh, confidence under his belt before we can be like, all right, this guy is somebody that you can trust at minus 260 against a UFC newcomer. Yeah, I mean, there's too many questions at this point in time. So I think this is a stay away fight. This is a prime stay away fight because if Tom Breeze is on top of his game, he could look like a top five guy. 
But if he's not there, then he looks like a bottom five guy. You know what I mean? So I'm not 100% sure what kind of Tom Breeze we're going to get. But this would be a good indication to see how much that loss really did to him and how much it mentally actually defeated him and if it will trickle down to, you know, future performances. So, uh, you know, I'm not parlaying Tom Breeze. I'm not even throwing him into a lottery parlay. Neither am I doing that with Buller. This is more of a sit back and just see what kind of fighters we're getting with both of these guys. So I will lean with Tom Breeze for the experience, um, you know, hoping that he's mentally on so you can actually perform. Uh, my heart is obviously with Buller. I hope he pulls it off. We need a, a, a legit Indian guy in the UFC making some waves, not name Arjun Buller, uh, but KB Buller. Hopefully he's able to get it done. Uh, obviously there's no relation there, so don't even try that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I do like Breeze here. I think he'll get it done on the feet. Uh, probably by decision, just go out there and outstrike KB, have a little bit more output. KB seems to be a little bit too patient on the feet. Not not saying that's completely a bad thing, but at the end of the day, if this ends up going a full three rounds, uh, you got to believe that Tom Breeze is going to be the one with the light, a little bit more output. Uh, and again, it also comes down to who will be able to land the more significant shots on the feet too. A part of me wants to see a play out on the ground as well, just to see where both of their jiu-jitsu games are at. But I'm going to be leaning with Tom Breeze here to win this fight via decision, just slightly outstriking Buller here. But again, in terms of betting this fight, I'm staying the fuck away. I just want to sit back, cheer for my guy Buller, uh, but we'll see what happens. But in terms of a prediction, I'll go with Breeze here with the experience advantage uh, and seemingly striking advantage. Uh, so yeah, I'll go with Tom Breeze to win this fight via decision. Yusuf Zalal versus Ilya Tapuria. We got minus 185 on Yusuf Zalal and plus 160 on Tapuria. Um, let's start off with Tapuria. This is a guy that I've been high on for a long time. Um, you know, dating back to his fight with Brian Bulan, that was June of 2018. I recall, uh, for some reason, I, I, I just had this, you know, this urge to bet Cage Warriors for some reason. I'm not sure exactly why. Even one championship, I had this... I had the time, you know, I wasn't doing full breakdowns for every single card like I am now, but Cage Warriors was one of those, especially in that spot. Um, I remember wanting to bet that fight and then especially saw the odds. Uh, I do want to confirm what the odds were, but I do remember getting him at solid plus money. So he was plus 100 to uh, Brian Bula and I think I got like plus 120 or something, but solid, solid spot there. Um, one thing, you know, the, the tape was tough to find on him uh, originally and especially the tape that we did find on him we were skeptical in terms of what uh, level of competition he was really going up against because he's just going in there taking these guys down immediately and then just you know sinking in submissions or ground and pounding these guys out you know he he seemed to have a pretty bright future and then he goes out there and does what he does to brian buland you know i mean takes him down with relative ease and then chokes him out via dar stroke uh his most recent fight against uh steven gonzalez um you know, he got he got hurt uh, early with that head kick by Gonzalez, but then, uh, you know, Taporio was able to implement his grappling pretty much right away. Um, you know, when Fardar Shok wasn't able to get that, then eventually they found the fight back on its feet, and then he got the one-punch knockout. Beautiful work there. Uh, I am still a little bit skeptical in terms of what his stand-up actually looks like. Uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll see Zalal with a slight striking advantage here. Um, but I think it truly comes down to the bread and butter, which is his grappling. He's just so high level with it. He's a black belt at this point now. Um, I believe he got his black belt just around the Brian Bulan fight. Uh, 
you know, he, he's been a high-level black belt for a long time now. He's been training jiu-jitsu hard, 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 uh, and it shows in his fights. The guy's very, very well-versed on the ground, uh, pretty much a step ahead of his opponents at all points, um, and has a strong wrestling base as well, too, in terms of being able to get the fight to the ground. Uh, again, I feel like his striking still needs a little bit of work, uh, but luckily enough for him, his grappling is good enough that he's going to be able to get by uh, against some of these guys with just his grappling alone. Uh, you know, Yusuf Zalal, we kind of know what he's about. You know, he he has had a strong start to 2020. Uh, he's had three victories in the UFC now, and now he's looking for his fourth one. Um, you know, February, June, August, and now October, four fights in 2020, a ridiculous stretch right now. Uh, three straight victories in the UFC, Austin Lingo, Jordan Griffin, and then Peter Barrett. Um, but if you go back to his fight with Jose Mariscal, that was a fight that he lost, but, uh, you know, you could have made a little bit of a case for Zalal in that fight too, but uh, that was a fight where Mariscal was able to get him down with relative ease. You know what I mean? There didn't seem like too much uh, takedown defense in terms of Zalal's side, uh, but he did have good jiu-jitsu. He had decent enough jiu-jitsu to try to, like, stay out of those bad positions, had a couple of submission attempts as well, uh, never really got super close to actually finishing them, Um but uh, yeah, that fight showed his takedown defense wasn't the greatest. Even the Jordan Griffin fight, even Peter Barrett, they both got him down with relative ease. You know, it, it was a different thing in terms of being able to keep him down. But I don't think either of those guys have the level of jujitsu that Ilya Taporia has. So I think that Taporia is definitely live here as a dog. And I think his jujitsu is going to be the uh, the main factor here. There are still questions remaining about Taporia, though. You know what I mean? Like there's the... That there's a striking that I still need to see a little bit more, and his cardio. Most of his fights are done within the first round, two rounds. It's kind of like Tom Aspinall thing where he, we see them go out there and just dust these guys. But what does it look like if they go, have to go a full 15 minutes? It's going to be tough to go out there and submit Yusuf Zalal, who has not been submitted in his pro career yet. Both of his losses have come via decision. But, uh, you know... Again, we do find him in compromising situations when fights are taken to the ground. Tuporia is just another level of grappling compared to what he's faced in the past, at least in my opinion. Uh, I think he has a high, high ceiling. He has a ton of uh, abilities on the ground that not a lot of people have. He's strong. His wrestling looks on point too. So I think that he should be able to grind out some of these guys. And to be honest, I wanted to go like a two and a half unit stab here on, uh, not, that's not even a stab, that's that's a full shot, uh, a two and a half uh, unit shot on Tuporia here. But those outlying questions still make me a little bit more conservative in terms of how much I want to uh, put on Tuporia. I still will be betting him. I think plus 160 is a very favorable spot for him. But again, we do need to see what that cardio looks like. And if, you know, I, I, I do think Zalal is going to be hard to put away. But I still believe that we can get a solid two rounds of uh, grappling and control from Tuporia in this fight to be able to, to to pull away with it. We know what Zalal's game is. The guy likes to stay on the outside. He likes to move a lot. He likes to kick. He likes to strike from the outside, get in and out. But he does still have issues in terms of getting backed up to the cage. And I think that's where Tuporia will have success. Um, you know, I, I love Tuporia in the spot. Like, I hate to say, to hate to keep harping on it, but I, I was super excited to see him get signed to the UFC. And, you know, this is not just strictly off of, you know, the, the hype that I had on him after that Brian Bulad fight. I truly believe this guy has a bright future. And, uh, you know, his grappling is going to be uh, the, the, the essence. It's going to be the centerfold of 
his success so i truly think that we'll see him be successful here i think we'll see him be able to take advantage of positions that we've seen jordan griffin and peter barrett get on zalal um i'm hoping that we get a submission finish i'm going to say second round sub for Tapuria. actually maybe even first round sub if he gets it down but uh yeah the the cardio and the striking is my only questions uh, about Ilya still so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him answer those questions hopefully this goes longer than a round or so so we can actually see those questions answered uh, but I do think he's a solid spot here I see him getting the takedown with relative ease against Salal and then implementing his jiu-jitsu um, hopefully his cardio is good enough that's my only concern but I will still be making the play on him at plus 160 I think he's a solid spot and uh, you know this is going to halt the run of Yusuf Zalal who a lot of people are really really high on you know he was supposed to fight Sung Woo Choi uh before Taporia stepped in and he was like a minus 400 a favorite a lot of people are loving him and he's coming with a lot of juice in a lot of his fights but I think Ilya Taporia is going to go out there and stop and halt that uh that uh, hype train of Yusuf Zalal so I do like Zalal here to win oh sorry I do like uh Taporia here I'm going to say by first round sub um the guy the guy's a beast he he is really really good on the uh on the ground and i think we'll truly see that here in his ufc ufc debut so once again i'm going with Ilya taporia to win this five-year first round submission tom aspinall versus alan baudot we got minus 485 on tom aspinall and plus 385 on the ufc newcomer alan baudot uh the over under obviously under one and a half is minus 160 and tom aspinall to win inside the distance is minus 245 minus 240 i should say insane the everybody is all over tom aspinall and he opened up as a minus 350 favorite and it's slowly inching its way down we're even seeing minus 580 at a couple places a lot of people showing love to tom aspinall so let's start off with him he had a successful ufc debut against jay collier last time around or at least the guy that ate jake collier um you know finished him with the right cross 45 seconds into that first round collier just didn't look like he wanted to be there at all um and, and solid win for Tom Aspinall. You know, it's a good way to stamp your arrival to the UFC. If you guys do remember my breakdown for that fight, I was a little bit skeptical of what we were going to get with Tom Aspinall. Um, you know, uh, even on the podcast, I actually picked Jake Collier to win. Uh, and that was before I saw him on the scales. Once I saw him on the scales, then you guys will notice on that same podcast, I went into the comment section immediately and pinned a comment that said, I take back everything I said about Jake Collier, and I'm picking Tom Aspinall to win this fight. And that's exactly what happened 45 seconds into that fight. But, you know, those questions still remain. You know, a 45-second victory over Jake Collier is not going to completely sway me off of uh you know potentially fading tom aspinall in the future the kid looks good you know he has solid stand-up uh brown belt in jiu-jitsu for as, as much as i know probably a black belt by this time but everything that i saw in his fights earlier led me to believe that there's still more that we need to find out about tom you know all of his fights pretty much have finished inside the first round anytime he has seen the second round he did lose um the lucas Perobiak fight that was actually lost via legal 12 to 6 elbow so 
you know, he pretty much lost that, like John Jones lost to Matt Hamill, if you want to say that. But again, there's no tape on that that at least I can find. So I know, I'm not sure how uh, one-sided, if anything, that fight actually was. Uh, the Stuart Austin fight, that is fight that is a fight that we do have tape on. And we did see the ground game of Tom Aspinall. And I got to say, I wasn't that thrilled with it um, via him losing a uh, heel hook in re- round two. But again, that was over five years ago. So I'm sure he's got to have made some strides since then. Uh, he does train at the same gym as uh, Darren Till, uh, so he has a solid training partner there. Uh, and he has a ton of potential that a lot of people think that he still hasn't tapped into. He's 27 years old, so he's, you know, that's a, a pretty much a baby in this heavyweight division. So he has a ton of time to really, you know, get his strengths and and fulfill uh, his potential to the, the, the maximum uh, amount. Um, luckily for him, uh, taking this fight against Alan Baudot, uh, it's it's a tough fight. Uh, sorry, not a tough fight. It's a, it's an easy fight. <laughs> what am I talking about? Um, I, I was going to say the Sergei Spivak fight was a, a slightly tougher fight in my in my opinion, where we probably would have seen uh, Tom Aspinall actually, um, you know, uh, threatened or him actually even in a little bit of trouble or even actually at least face a little bit of adversity. In this fight against Alan Baudot, I think he just has his soul like. Uh, outclassed at least in terms of the ground as well where if he takes this fight to the ground I wouldn't be surprised if he finds a submission within that first round uh, Alan Baudot for as long as you for as much as hate uh, as he's getting on the interwebs right now um, he has decent stand-up you know his, his striking is where he makes his bread and butter but the one unfortunate thing is it seems like on the local scene uh, or at least on the regional scene when he's fighting these uh, Korean guys and these Japanese guys they're completely outmatched in terms of the size. You know, Alan Baudot is coming in there much, much bigger than these guys. And these guys are trying to go out there and wrestle him. And he's just ragdolling them all around. Once he actually fights guys that are legitimately, you know, his size or at least his weight class, you know, he's come up out on the short end. Dolce Lungiambula fucking starches him in the first round. You know, they, they decide to throw heat for the first 30 seconds and... Unfortunately for Alan Baudot, he's the one completely stuff on the ground. He went out, out. It was pretty bad. In the Todd Stout fight, you know, that's a fight where he did win via disqualification. Uh, but it was actually Todd Stout who submitted him in the third round. Um, for those familiar with Todd and his fighting style, he's more only a, he's normally a brawler, a Muay Thai striker, likes to throw bombs. Uh, but he's normally the one that's getting grapple fucked or clinch fucked. For some reason in that fight, he decided to go that same route. And he did the exact same thing to Alan Baudot. Uh, but whenever they were in open uh, space and uh, Alan Baudot was able to flow a little bit, he was actually landing some good shots. I was surprised at the amount uh, he was actually successful in that open area. So uh, if I'm Tom Aspinall, I don't want to give him that space at all. I don't want to make him or, you know, allow him to gain any type of confidence. I want to go in there. I want to close the distance. I want to drag this guy to the ground and test out his jujitsu because I don't think that there is much of it at all. Uh, you know, why I say that there are some compromising positions that he got Todd in and Todd was able to just completely like, you know, reverse out of it have a sweep and then control him pretty heavily on top. Very, very surprised at the ability for Todd to actually do that uh, to a guy because that's not how Todd fights. You know what I mean? That Todd has always been the one that's been grapple fucks. So if for him to go out there and grapple fuck somebody else, it kind of just shows me that. And this is not no shot at Todd. You know what I mean? The guy's my boy. <laughs> so I'm not trying to shit on him at all. But uh, Baudo had no answer for the grappling. And that's a little bit concerning, especially going in there against a, you know, 
possible black belt, I believe Tom Aspinall is at this point in time. He was a brown belt five years ago, so I'm assuming he's a black belt by this time. Um, you know, I think he's going to be in a ton of trouble. I think we will see Tom Aspinall get this fight to the ground ASAP. You know, try not to uh, incur any damage or uh, lose via fluke finish of any kind. Uh, but I, I, I'm expecting him to get this fight to the ground pretty much ASAP, work his ground and pound, hopefully opens up a submission of some sort. But I do think we see Tom Aspinall go out there and get his submission in the first round. Um, but he needs to be careful on the feet. A lot of people can bang on Allen all they want, but I was impressed with what I did see from him on the feet in some of the fights that I was able to find of his um you know, again, even rocking and hurting Todd to a certain extent, that was kind of uh, mind open or mind boggling to me. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying it's a complete uh, wipeout for Tom Aspinall on the feet, but I do think his best path to victory is getting this fight to the ground. So I'm going to go with Tom Aspinall to win this via first round submission. Uh, but yeah, he's a little bit out of my betting range or even parlaying range now. You're getting close to minus 500 for this guy. And, uh, you know, this is heavyweight MMA and uh, Alan Baudot has shown enough, um, you know, enough on the feet for me to believe that this guy has even a puncher's chance at this point in time. So um, minus 500, I'm a pass on Tom Aspinall. But if some money does find its way back on Alan Baudot, uh, you know, closer to fight time, maybe I'll look at parlaying Tom closer to the minus 400 range. But uh, yeah. I'm going to pass on this fight in the under one and a half minus 160. Not a bad spot either. Do As I do believe if Allen does get it done, it's an early finish. Or if Tom Aspinall gets it done, which I believe he will, it's going to be in the first round regardless. So I got Tom Aspinall via first round submission. Marcus Perez versus Drickus Duplessis. We got plus 135 on Perez and minus 155 on Duplessis. Let's start off with Marcus Perez. Uh, he's coming off a loss to Wellington Terman. He was actually scheduled to fight Eric Spicely August 1st. Spicely fails to make weight and they pull that fight. And unfortunately for Perez, they're not able to get him a short notice uh, replacement. So uh, it's coming up close to a year since the last time he fought, which was against Wellington Terman, where he lost a decision. Uh, his only wins in the UFC has come to or have come come over James Boknovich, who we quickly found out was not UFC level at all. And then uh, Anthony Hernandez in a fight where he lost the first round, uh, clips Anthony Hernandez with something in the second round, uh, pours it on him, and then eventually gets an anaconda choke finish. Uh, but outside of that, you know, he lost to Eric Anders, lost to Andrew Sanchez. Uh, he did beat Ian Heinrich on uh, in the LFA scene uh, with an arm triangle choke, so that was quite impressive. But... Uh, Outside of that, man, it's a little bit sketchy with Perez. The, the the guy really doesn't fight with much urgency. He fights to entertain. You know what I mean? He doesn't really fight to win. There's a difference between fighting to entertain and fight to win. Fighting to entertain, you're just going out there and throwing fucking spinning shit. You know, you're coming out in a weird karate stance and throwing shots here and there. And, you know, one might land, but for the majority, you're pretty much missing the target. Um, and then fighting to win, you know, you have... Uh, that's where I think we'll, we'll see Duplessis. Like, you'll have a game plan in mind where you're going to be patient, you're going to wait for your openings, and then you're going to attack. It, it doesn't seem like that is comprehended in um, Marcus Perez's mind. Like, the guy just goes out there and just fucking no game plan, just throws it out the window and just does whatever the hell he wants. And it's hard to trust a guy like that. The one thing that you can trust him with, though, is his durability. The guy can take a shot. Uh, he's never been finished. Um... You know, there's a ton of, uh, the, the the like, if you really put it together, I think he could be an actually a good fighter. Like, he has some power, he has some solid submission skills, but outside of that, it's just, 
a wild card whenever you're betting on a fight with uh, Marcus Perez. Um, Drickus Duplessis is a guy that I've heard a lot about, uh, especially after he beat uh, Roberto Soldich, who's a you know a monster on that KSW scene. Uh, Duplessis comes in there after capturing a second title in uh, EFC. Uh, he knocked out Yannick Bahati to be able to get uh, a middleweight title. So he is the welterweight champion and the middleweight champion. Then he hops over to KSW, challenges for the welterweight title pretty much immediately, and then uh, you know knocks out uh, Robert uh, Roberto Soldich. Uh, so that was very impressive on his end. And then you know Soldich gets a pretty much an immediate rematch, uh, just being you know the long reigning KSW welterweight champ at that time. And then he get uh, Soldich gets the finish in the third round. So. Um, since then, Duplessis has pulled off two straight victories, one over Jolton Santos and then another one over Brendan Lesser. Both of those finishes, um, he, he looks good. Like the, the thing is, I thought I would be a little bit more blown away by him, uh, given the amount that I've actually heard about this guy. You know, he seems slightly low output, waits for his spots, picks guys apart, um, has some solid uh, striking decent uh wrestling nothing crazy that jumps off the page but i think he's efficient enough of a fighter overall to go out there and just pick apart marcus perez i don't think he's going to go out there and finish perez even though most of his wins have come by finish i think it's going to be a little bit harder to put away Mar- uh, marcus perez um the guy's durable like i said you know what i mean so i think duplessis really needs to 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 understand that i i hope he doesn't go into this fight thinking that he's going to go out there and and knock out perez or submit perez right away it's not going to happen he's going to have to be methodical technical about it and i from what i've seen it seems like that's the type of fighter he is you know he doesn't really throw without um being calculated and in terms of what's coming back his way um which is why he's on such a great run you know what i mean outside of that soldage fight uh, his only other loss was gareth mcclennan way back in 2014 which was his fifth ever fight uh, and that was McLennan's uh, th- 13th or 14th fight at the time. And that was the fight that actually got McLennan into the UFC. And then obviously McLennan just went on a shit streak and got cut. But, uh, you know, Duplessis really learned from that fight, it seems like. And he came back looking like a monster. And with Roberto Soldich as his only loss in that amount of time, uh, not to mention a victory over him and two, that's got to do a lot for his confidence. So as long as he doesn't go out there and just fight like a complete idiot, he should be able to go out there, leg kick Marcus Perez, land a couple one-twos, wait for his openings, wait for Perez to overextend a little bit, land a couple shots, maybe clinch fuck him a little bit, get into the grappling a little bit too. Uh, as long as he mixes it up, doesn't blow his gas tank early or anything like that, I, this is, I think this is an easy decision victory for Duplessis. But I just need to see a little bit of output from him, a little bit of, um, you know, a calculated approach and i think it should be a easy victory for him the one bet that i'm actually looking at for this fight is uh for the fight to start round three um the over under set at two and a half with the over two and a half being plus 105 for the fight to start round three is minus 125 i think there's a some solid value there given the durability of marcus perez and a part of me just is a little bit skeptical of like you know giving them that extra two and a half minutes and betting the over instead you know what i mean um Minus one twenty-five is a great line, in my opinion. For uh, again, for um, Perez, who's super durable, Duplessis, who seems to be calm, calculated, and really looks for his openings. He has a a plethora of first round finishes on his record too. But the the guy, when he's actually fighting somebody that isn't a complete nutcase, he's very calm and collected, just like the Soldich fights. So um, 
yeah, I, I think we see Duplessis take this fight via uh, decision, but I think the play here will be the fight to start round three. So if you have that prop available on any of your bookies, I think it's definitely worth a shot. So uh, I'll go with Duplessis to win this fight via decision. Big Ben Rothwell versus Marcin Tybura. We got minus 160 on Big Ben and plus 140 on Marcin Tybura. And this is a line similar to the Corey Sandhagen line that's slowly starting to close as we're getting closer to fight day. So we had Ben Rothwell close to minus 200 at, a, at one point uh, as early as last Friday. And now he's inching closer to that minus 160 range, even minus 155 at certain spots. I'm very intrigued to see where this line is going to close because I think that the money is coming in on the wrong side, just as the Corey Sandhagen fight, as, I, as I'm going to allude to later in this podcast. Um, but let's start off with Marjean Tybura. He's coming off of two straight victories. Uh, that may lead people to believe that he's on a little bit of a resurgence. Uh, he has a victory over Sergei Spivak and Maxime Grishin. Uh, before that, he was on a two-fight losing streak to Shamil Abdurakhimov and Augusto Sakai. Both of those fights he got finished in. Um, and then obviously... Uh, you know, he had lost to uh, Derek Lewis uh, prior to that via finish as well. But, you know, some people think that he's got a little bit of a resurgence, uh, managed to get his ducks in a row and, and is finally fighting to the potential that a lot of people believed he could have. Uh, but I don't really believe so. Because if you look at those fights stylistically and how he matches up to Ben Rothwell trying to implement a similar style... It's just not going to work. So let's let's go to the Sergei Spivak fight. You know, that's a fight where he used his hands a little bit, but the main thing for him was try to get this fight to the ground. And there wasn't much opposition in terms of Spivak and his takedown defense. He was able to get that takedown pretty easily in every single round and ride out on top, landing perfect shots from on top and, you know, just taking a decision that way. The Maxine Grishin fight... Kind of the same thing, uh, but, you know, it was a little bit more clinching up against the cage, overpowering Grishin. You know, if you guys are aware of Maxime Grishin, he's more of a light heavyweight. He took that fight on short notice, and, um, you know, he's mainly a 205-er. He came in at 224, whereas Marcin Tybura came in in the 250s, mid-250 range. So he had a ton of weight to work with, uh, and he was able to pretty much just control Grishin that entire fight. Uh, not too much in the hands, not too much in the feet, just a couple combinations here and there. Uh, with Ben Rothwell, though, let's let's look at his last little uh, spurt. He's on a two-fight winning streak as well, and the same thing that he shares in common with Marcin Tybura in regards to the last fight was that they both fought light heavyweights, and they both went out there and got a victory. Um you know, both of them on two fight winning streaks. Uh, but Ben Rothwell has looked a little bit sketchy as of late too. That's that's why going into taping this fight, I'm like, all right, there's got to be some value on Marcin Tabura here, even at plus 140. Like you got to go in there and think that he has more tools and more ways to win this fight. But when you actually break it down and look at it, the, the ways that Junior Dos Santos, Blagoy Ivanov, and Andre Arlovsky won their fights against Ben Rothwell, and even Stefan Struve, who was arguably winning that fight up until he got finished and got nutshotted a couple times, um, is the output you know it's it's what's coming back at ben rothwell because uh, a given in all of ben rothwell's fights is that he's going to be the one pushing the pace not pushing the pace but walking forward he's going to be the one kind of pushing his opponents up against the cage uh you know walking them down looking for that kill shot and he does blitz in every now and then with a couple awkward strikes his strikes come from such weird angles and 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 the the types of ranges that he uses is just so awkward for some opponents and then obviously he has a lot of power behind his shots as well so that's something that 
Tabor is going to need to to figure out. But like Arlovsky, uh, JDS especially, um, and Blagoy even off to a certain extent, all of those fighters, you know, as they were backing up, they were the ones, uh, you know, stepping forward a little bit, landing a combination. The, the 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 important thing here is the combination. They're landing two, three strikes and then getting out of the way. A lot of them were doing a lot of body work on Ben Rothwell as well too, because yeah, he does have a decent guard where he's just like he has this weird style of just kind of like batting people down, but. They, they they land on the body and then they open up the head. And then we saw Andre Arlovsky paint a beautiful picture, a beautiful violent picture on Ben Rothwell's face with the beautiful uh, handiwork that he was able to land in that fight. Um, th- that's what's concerning about Tybora. Tybora doesn't throw that type of efficiency with his combinations. He doesn't throw many combinations to begin with. You know, he's more of a one-and-done type of fighter as well, too. He moves well for a heavyweight, but his lack of output is kind of what's concerning here. And also, I think that he's going to be very intimidated in terms of the power that's going to be coming back in him from Ben Rothwell here. You know, anytime that opponents have really... Uh, you know, pushed uh, pushed uh, Marcin Dabura and were the ones walking forward. They were quite successful in terms of landing the, the a big enough shot to plant him on his butt and get the finish. I think Ben Rothwell, you know, it's been a while since, well, other than the Stefan Struve fight, uh, the last time he finished a fight via strikes was Alistair Overeem back in 2014. But I think this is another prime opportunity for Ben Rothwell to go in there, push the pace, uh, you know, keep walking him down and then uh, eventually landing a big enough shot to put Dabura down. Um, you know, if Tybora wants to go in there and, and try to take Ben Rothwell down, I think he's going to be very unsuccessful. There's not a lot of guys that have been successful in taking Ben Rothwell down. And when they are, he gets right back to his foot, uh, his feet. You know, I, I, I highly doubt that Tybora is going to be able to keep uh, Rothwell down. It's almost going to look like when he was taking down uh, Derek Lewis. Yeah, he got Derek Lewis down, but he wasn't able to keep him down. You know what I mean? When Derek Lewis wanted to get back to his feet, he was able to get back to his feet. And I think uh, that's kind of a Derek Lewis thing, but I think Ben Rothwell will be capable of that uh, in this fight as well. Um, but I, again, I don't even see I don't even see it hitting the ground. I think if they do tie up in the clinch against the cage, I think it's Ben Rothwell that's going to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit stronger, uh, has have a little bit more brute strength to actually push Tybur up against the cage, land a couple baby shots, and then break off and then start to strike again. Um, it's the killer instinct of Ben Rothwell as well too. I think that's really going to catch up to Tybura. So uh, going into this, I really wanted to bet Tybura. I'm like, okay, he seems like the more agile uh, fighter, this, the one that has a little bit more tools on the feet, but it's his lack of output that really has me concerned. And I think that Ben Rothwell continuously walking him down is going to break his will. Uh, Rothwell is going to be the one getting his shots off. And I truly think that we'll see Ben Rothwell get a finish here too. So I'm going to say either first or second round KO for Rothwell here, uh, Plus 270 for him to win inside the distance is not that bad of a line. Um, but I do like Ben Rothwell here. Uh, he's currently at minus 160. I want to see how much this line continues to drop because if it gets to the minus 140, minus 130 range even, I might be uh, tempted to take a little bit of a shot. But maybe he's a, a nice little parlay piece as well. Uh, if you guys have noticed from my last couple of events, something that I like to do is uh, take a fighter that's you know just outside of the range of me wanting to bet him straight, like a Lomo Lukbumi, who is at minus 150, I believe, and then parlay them with something that I believe it's a little bit more of a, a sure bet. Um, 
and just get a, you know some plus money out of it uh, rather than just taking Ben Rothwell straight. So uh, Rothwell definitely is a spot that I'm going to be looking at, and there are a ton of other potential uh, parlay pieces on this card. So uh, you know if I haven't already spoken about it on this podcast, you guys know what the fuck I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, I do like Ben Rothwell here. I think he gets it done in the second round, uh, and I think the pressure is just going to be too much for Tybura. He won't have enough uh, coming back at Ben Rothwell, and I think that's going to be uh, his detriment because that's really what seems to demoralize Ben Rothwell in his fights is when guys are able to get off on the feet, land combinations, and get out of the way. I don't think Tybura will be capable of that, or at least capable of, capable of sustaining that over 15 minutes. I think it's in the second round that he breaks, and we get a Ben Rothwell TKO. Makwan Amir Khani versus Edson Barboza. We got minus 260 for Barboza and plus 220 for Mr. Finland. Uh, let's start off with Mr. Finland himself. So he's coming off a victory over Danny Henry over at UFC 251, which was uh, the first uh, fight, I believe, at Fight Island. Uh, and he came out on the successful end uh, with an Anaconda choke three minutes and 15 seconds into that first round. Uh, it was a little bit of a feeling out process for the first three or so minutes. Danny Henry was really trying to establish his range and try to find the right spots to pick apart Makwan Amerikani. And then all it took was a, a flying knee attempt for Makwan to really get uh, Danny Henry into a position to push him up against the cage, go for a takedown. And Makwan, there's one thing that he does very, very well in most of his takedown attempts is whenever his opponent try to tries to get out of it, he does a good job of switching one of his arms over to uh, start threatening with the guillotine. And he pretty much starts pulling for a um an arm and guillotine pretty much immediately and then his end goal is obviously to slip it all the way to a dar stroke or an anaconda choke uh whichever side he has the the lock on of course uh and then he tries to finish it that way if he's not able to get that finish though he exerts a lot of energy try to tr- trying to get that you know and that's kind of where his downfall is he's almost like um I hate to call it, but he's almost like a, a first-round finish fighter type of thing. You know what I mean, if he doesn't get the finish in that first round, things are going to get a little bit dicey for him. Uh, and especially in this fight against Adson Barboza, who, in my opinion, has a significant advantage on the feet. Obviously, just as Shane Burgos had a significant advantage on the feet, as long as they're able to survive that first little onslaught from Akwan Amirkani uh, with, the, with the takedowns and the potential submission threats, uh, I think that it's pretty much a runaway for Barboza. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that Shane Burgos was really uh, successful with and really drained the energy of Maquan was the body shots. And if we watch the Danny Gay fight for Edson Barboza, that's something that's very evident that he, you know, relies on and he shoot, you know, he throws it out there a lot and. Even hurts Ige near the ending of that round uh, of round two with a beautiful knee to the body. Um, you know, and and a lot of judge, two of the judges actually ended up giving that round to Dan Ige. Yeah, Ige started off that round pretty well. Uh, and I think, you know, on first watch for our deciding splits, we did score for Ige because of his output in the uh, the first half of that second round. But, you know, Edson Barboza really did start to put him up, put it on him in that second round, uh, in the second half of that second round, I should say. But uh, one thing you can always kind of bank on Barboza for is a solid gas tank through 15 minutes, at least better than what uh, Maquan Americani has shown. You know, uh, if Barboza is able to go to work early on that body, I think he'll be able to really gas him up by the end of that first round. And then in the second and third, we'll really see him take over. Um, Barboza, solid takedown defense. Ige did get him down near the ending of that third round. Um, you know, but I don't expect Malkwan to really have that much gas to, to be able to pull off a takedown on Barboza at that point in time. Um 
you know, but Barboza, we already know about his style. You know, great kicks, great Muay Thai, great in the clinch as well. And that's where Makwan really finds himself as well, is in these clinch type of situations, trying to drag his opponents down. But once he's eating knees and elbows from the inside from Edson Barboza, I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult for him to really complete those takedowns and really want to, you know, engage in those uh, those scenarios even more. So I think that's a little bit of uh, uh, an issue for Makwan. Um, I, I truly think that Edson Barboza still has the ability to compete at a high level. You know, we did see something about him saying that he wanted to get released from the UFC. And I think it has in part to do with his, uh, you know, the level of pay that he's getting. Because, you know, look at that. His last two fights, split decisions. If they don't, you know, if one other judge gives it to him, he's going home with double his money. Compared to like contracts with Bellator or PFL or One Championship, whoever the fuck else. Most of these other companies are paying these guys a flat base rate to show up. So if, you know, Barboza's going out there expecting to get paid $84,000 off of a 42 and 42 fight purse, you know, one judge decides that he's not the one that that won that fight and he goes home with half of his money. You know what I mean? So I understand his frustration of fighting with the UFC and probably not getting paid the amount he wants. And obviously it needs to come down to him actually performing and earning those dollars. Uh, but at the end of the day, when, it, when there's such close fights and even fights that a lot of judges, and uh, sorry, a lot of people on MMA decisions actually scored for him too, I can understand the outrage. I understand it. So uh, I get that. So maybe here... But we see a little bit more of a fire out of him. Maybe we see him a little bit more uh, urgent. To, and I think this is a perfect matchup for him to, to showcase as, as well too. As long as he's able to survive that first blitz that Marco Americano is going to be throwing at him in that first round, I think it should be okay. Um, and that that's really all I give Marco. And I think that Barboza does such a good job of staying off the cage, you know, cage-wise being very aware of where he's at you know if he feels like he's behind the warning track he does a good job of circling off getting back to the middle of the cage and then getting his Muay Thai going once again um I truly think it's going to be the body shots that are the difference maker in this fight I think once Mark one starts you know starts huffing and puffing a little bit we'll see Edson Barboza really start to throw those kicks to the body more his switch kick is fucking phenomenal uh it's so fast I highly doubt we'll see Mark one be able to like uh you know um translate a, a takedown off of a leg kick of Edson Barboza it would be very surprising to me if he's actually successful in getting Barboza down off of one of those but I truly think that we see Barboza put on a clinic on the feet uh, after the three minute mark or four minute mark or once Mark One really starts to, to start huffing and puffing I think that's where we see Barboza really start to take over so I wouldn't even uh, you know uh I wouldn't rule out a third round finish for Barboza here. It seems like the odds are plus 800 for Barboza to win in the third. Not enough for me. I mean, I'm looking for those plus 1400s, plus 1500s. But I think there is a solid chance that we see Barboza get Mach 1 out of there in the third round. But uh, yeah, I I love Barboza in the spot. He's totally deserving of the the juice that he's at right now. Minus 250, minus 260. Uh, I'm going to see where the money goes a little bit during this week. But uh, and also where my studies take me for the rest of this card. But I truly like Barboza here. I think he's a solid spot. Uh, whether you guys want to parlay him or even play him straight, I think he has a ton of value here. Because uh, you know, strictly due to you know Macwan having a small. Um, a small area to win this fight makes that in with the solid takedown defense of Edson Barboza and the wide margin of striking uh, advantage that Barboza has as well. Uh, this is Barboza's fight. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he still has it, um, and I think he gets it done. I'm going to take Edson Barboza to win this fight via third round TKO. 
Magic Marlon Marais versus Corey Sandhagen. We got minus 135 on Corey and plus 115 on Magic Marais. <clears throat> and the line has actually been trending downwards as the as the we are trending to a closer the the gap is closing pretty much is what i'm fucking trying to say uh as the week has gone on like if you look back at wednesday of last week uh, it was minus 170 for Corey sandagan and now we're talking about monday night of fight week and it's minus 135 i'm super intrigued to see how this line continues to shift uh and i'm kind of surprised and i'm really looking forward to seeing and hearing from other people uh what their kind of you know uh what their moat or or their their how they're getting to this result of Marlon Reich actually being the the good side here uh say what you want about the the line value and all that type of stuff maybe Marlon Reich all the way up at what was he at plus 150 okay that might be a little bit wide sure I get it but Corey Sanhagen is winning this fight so let's get into the breakdown of the actual fight itself. Let's start off with Marlon Marais. And it's weird what they're doing to Marlon Marais himself, too. So if you guys remember, his last fight was actually UFC 245, where he beat Jose Aldo via split decision. Highly outraged uh, uh, the, the community. I believe we did a deciding splits on that. We actually thought Marais won. You know, we believe it came down to that third round. And even though Jose Aldo was the one plotting for it the entire time, uh, and land a couple of shots. Uh, Marlon Marais was the one that was landing better shots off of his back foot. Uh, and then they actually scheduled him to fight Piotr Jan in June before COVID. And then COVID hit. And then we saw Piotr Jan go out there and fight Jose Aldo uh, and capture the title. Um, and and now they got him against Corey Sennigan, who just lost to the guy that's probably going to be fighting for the title next. But it's weird though, right? Like uh, Marlon Marais beat... Um, Aljamain Sterling, Marlon Marais beat Jose Aldo, yet those two guys are the ones getting the shots right before uh, Marlon Marais. I get that his loss to Henry Cejudo uh, was, you know, somewhat dominant of a victory for Henry Cejudo, but, uh, you know, just based on wins, you know what I mean? Marlon Marais should be ahead of these other guys. Um, but in here, he, in here, he steps against Corey Sandhagen now, and he has to prove himself once again. Now, if he goes out there and gets a spectacular victory, I get it. You can put him into a title shot now after Aljamain Sterling gets a shot. And the funny thing is they haven't even made the Yan and Aljo fight uh, official yet. So who knows? Maybe Marlon Marais goes out there, gets a spectacular win, and they just plug him in because for some reason they just hate Aljamain Sterling. Um, but yeah, in terms of his fighting style, so he came over from the WSOF with, this, with a solid record. What was his record coming into the, coming into the UFC? He was 17-4-1. Most of his losses had happened earlier in his career, but when he, uh, you know, two fights before he joined the WSOF, he went on a, what, six, nine, almost a 16-fight win streak. Insane, he was able to put together, uh, sorry, 13 or 14-fight win streak. I'm just getting my math all fucked up. But very, very uh, impressive run that he was on before coming over to the UFC. But then he comes into UFC, loses a split decision against Rafael Sunsao, wins four straight, including, uh, you know, avenging that loss to Rafael Sunsao by dominant finish. Uh, three finishes in that run as well. 
over Aljamain Sterling, Jimmy Rivera, and then Rafael Asuncio. And then he goes out there and loses, uh, beats uh, John Dodson uh, via split decision. And then he gets that title shot against Henry Cejudo um, and loses for the, in that third round. The first round and a half, he looked good. You know, landing good leg kicks. He was the one moving forward. He was the one throwing his combinations. And Henry Cejudo was a little bit flabbergasted as terms, in terms of what was coming towards him. And then something changed halfway through that first, uh, second round where Henry Cejudo just decided to say, fuck it. And he, he was the one that started to move forward, started to throw bombs, started to clinch up and started, started landing beautiful knees that really started to suck the wind out of Marlon Moraes. And that's where we see the flaws in Marlon Moraes' game. He doesn't like to be the guy that's backed up. And yeah, you can say that you want that Jose Aldo fight uh, pretty much backing up. But Jose Aldo, you know, he was so wound up and so tense. And yeah, he was the one moving forward. And yeah, he threw a couple good combinations. But his output, the lack of output that he threw, really lost him that fight. If he threw a little bit more, I think he would have come out on the on the winning end. But the thing is with him and the difference between Aldo and Corey Sandhagen is, Sandhagen's a little bit more loose, a little bit more uh, willing to, you know, get in and out of range, pulling shots out of his opponents and then countering them and then getting out of the way. His footwork... And it's kind of hard to say this, especially against a guy like Jose Aldo, but Corey Sandhagen's footwork is much better than Jose Aldo's at this point in their careers. You know, Sandhagen has just such a weird, awkward style. The only guy it really reminds me of is Dominic Cruz, and I think he has a better game than Dominic Cruz too once on its once it's going to be all said and done because he has so much more to his game than that just weird herky-jerky, uh, you know, um, in-and-out style of Dominic Cruz. You know, Corey Sandhagen throws way more kicks. You know, he 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 attacks that lead leg with his, it's like a teep to the shin. Um, just his front kicks up the middle. You know, we didn't see that many kicks out of Dominic Cruz during his reign. He was more of a, you know, in and out, pop you and then get out. Corey Sandhagen, he's a little bit more offensive and he throws way more output. And that's where I think most of these fighters are going to come to a, a point where they're just like, fuck, I don't know what to do or how to capitalize in fighting this guy. You know, Aljamain Sterling had a great game plan in terms of just trying to get this fight down, use his strength ASAP, and then get that back. He was able to get that back as soon as he could and then was able to get to work. If that fight was in the second round or something, I don't think it would have been as easy for Aljamain Sterling to get that submission. And yeah, Marlon Moraes is a high-level black belt himself too, but I don't think he has the level of jiu-jitsu that Aljamain Sterling does, especially offensively. Um and I think it, he might even be a little bit too scared to try to go that route too because if he's not able to pull off that submission <laughs> early in the fight, he's probably going to gas himself out. One thing that we have seen is he does have an issue with his gas tank, especially when he's not the one in control. You know, coming into the UFC, I thought, you know, okay, look at this guy having a fantastic run over there in the WSOF. But most of his fights not, haven't really gone past the third round. You know, he did fi finish Shaman Marais in that third round. He won a, a victory or a decision over Josh Hill but we know the discrepancy in terms of the uh, the striking advantage that Marlon Moraes had in that, and obviously Marlon Moraes was the one with the, his foot in the, foot on the pedal in that fight. In this in this fight against Corey Sandhagen, all I can see is Marlon Moraes continuously moving backwards and getting popped in the face and having that just disturbed look on his face, like I don't know what the fuck to do or where these punches are coming from or what Corey Sandhagen is going to throw next. I think Marlon Moraes really only has one round to win this fight. If he doesn't get it done in that first round, I think it's going to be very hard for him to catch Corey Sandhagen in, in second, third, fourth, or fifth round. Um, you know, he, he has a great switch kick. He landed on Aldo pretty much the first strike that he threw against Aldo. It was the first strike he threw against Jimmy Rivera and he was able to put him out. But I don't think we'll see uh, Corey Sandhagen get uh, caught with anything like that. 
Um, Sanhagen uses his range and his reach very, very well. Uh, you know, it's not often that you see him get hit with a really big shot. Uh, I think the most, um, I think the, the the punch or the exchange that sticks out most in terms of Corey Sanhagen being the most in trouble was when John Lineker really put it on him in that last 30 seconds uh, of their fight, landed a good combination, and then it forced Sanhagen to go for a shot, and he ended up in a guillotine, and, you know, it seemed like Sanhagen was going to get out regardless, uh, but it did take them to the end of the fight, uh, and Sanhagen was still able to come out with the victory there. But I, I like Sanhagen. I don't think that one loss to, to Aljamain Sterling is too detrimental to his career. The kid has a lot to still uh, grow and, and a lot more potential to really achieve still. But I think at this point in career, he's, st- he's still at that point where he can beat a monster like Marlon Moraes. Um, it's going to come down to Moraes getting a finish here. And if you truly believe that Marlon Moraes is going to get the win here, you might as well bet him inside the distance. There's no way he's going to win a decision here against Corey Sandhagen, who, in my opinion, has the better gas tank for a 25-minute or 25 minute fight. Even though this is going to be his first scheduled main event for the UFC, uh, I, I truly believe the, the work that he's getting over there in uh, Colorado at altitude, uh, his game plan and his style and how we've seen him fight over you know the, the, the runs of uh, fights that he's had in the UFC, you can see that this guy has gas tank for days. Um, and it's going to really, really stump Marlon Rice, in my opinion. I don't think we've seen too much uh, chin issues from Corey Sanhagen either. So again, I don't think that the knockout is truly uh, much of a threat on Marlon Rice's side. And don't get me wrong, Rice has a ton of power. So that could definitely change things. He could definitely add that uh, little wrinkle that other fighters weren't able to. But he was able to take shots from Lineker outside of that one uh, exchange at the end of the fight. Um, but I don't even think we'll see Marlon Rice really hanging with Corey Sanhagen uh, when it comes to the 14th and 15th minute of the fight. Uh, the, the one line that I really like here as well, and it's still a little bit early, but the fight doesn't go to decision at minus 195 is very intriguing. Corey signing in to win inside the distance at plus 170, very intriguing. I, I don't think that this will go to a decision. I think we'll either get an early finish for Marlon Marais or a third or fourth round finish for Corey Sandhagen. I kind of was hoping that the over-under was going to be set at four and a half. Unfortunately, it's at three and a half, and that gives me a little bit of pause. You know, Corey Sandhagen is efficient and he's... Uh, and he's very good with staying and sticking to the game plan. Even uh, Elliot Marshall says in one of the interviews that he had in terms of does Corey Sanhagen really search and look for finishes, he doesn't. He just takes takes what's given to him. And I think he's going to take what's given to him with Marlon Moraes. I just don't know at what point he's going to be able to achieve that with him, whether it's the third round, whether it's the fourth round, whether it's the fifth round. But if you're giving me better than minus 230, minus 240, for this, fight, for this fight to not go to decision, I'm probably pulling the trigger. And I'm pulling the trigger large here because I really think that this is a fight that won't see the judges' scorecards. You're giving me five rounds for a guy that's, you know, who's seen to to gas with Marlon Moraes, um, especially when he's put up against pressure. And we're talking about Mr. Pressure himself, Corey Sandhagen, who's just going to be sticking a jab in his face pretty much for the full 20-something minutes, however long this fight's going to go on. You know, from minute one, Corey Sanding is going to be jabbing his face off. He's going to be in and out. He's going to get out of the way of the big strikes of Marlon Marais. Um And yeah, I think this is a prime spot for Corey Sanding to really break out and really erase that Aljamain Sterling loss off of his record. So I like Corey here. I think he gets it done probably in the fourth round, uh, you know, maybe even the third round. 
Um, I hope he starts to put a little bit more sting on his shots later in the fight, just to you know cement a victory here. And I truly think that he is aware of how dominant uh, a finish of Marlon Moraes will look on his record. And I truly think that he's going to go for that finish. So I like Marlon Moraes, or sorry, uh, Corey Sandhagen here. Fourth round TKO. Um, and yeah, I like the fight doesn't go to decision either. The under three and a half, again, I'm... I wish it was four and a half because I'd be a little bit more uh, happy with that. But I'm not sure if the finish is going to come in the third, fourth, or fifth round. But it will be late for Corey Sandhagen. He's going to get it done. He's going to look, he's going to style on Marlon Marais as well. And I'm hoping that this line continues to come down a little bit because I might just pull Corey Sandhagen straight as well. But I do think the main play for me here will be the fight doesn't go to the decision. So once again, Corey Sandhagen to win this fight via fourth round TKO. And those are the breakdowns for UFC Fight Island 5. I hope you guys found those insightful and helps you make a decision on which side you want to lean on for some of these fights. Uh, I already have three bets in play as of this recording. I am looking to make at least two, maybe three more plays. Not 100% sure yet. Uh, it is Wednesday night, so there are still a couple days for me to, to, to really see how the line moving uh you know settles out for some of these fights uh so just stay posted um patreon members already know what the bets are uh i'll release the bets for free once the weigh-ins have completed uh line obviously will may not be the same but i do want to give a little bit of a benefit to the patreon members uh for hopping on there so they get the bets as soon as i place them uh, and probably better lines sometimes you know worse lines who the hell knows uh with some of these line movements that we've been seeing lately but uh yeah shout out to everybody on the patreon once again hit up the patreon five bucks a month you guys got a ton of good uh content and you guys help me get this closer to being a full-time thing for me um which i believe would be very beneficial for a lot of people all right uh that's it for this episode the patreon link is in the description below make sure you guys check that shit out uh hit subscribe if you haven't already uh getting close to that 1100 subscriber mark really looking forward to that and uh yeah we're inching closer to episode 100 which should be for ufc 254 and i have a huge surprise for you guys i can't wait to get into that episode and start recording that shit for you guys so very much looking forward to that but we're still like three episodes away so strap in all right good luck with your bets this weekend and uh i'll see you guys next week